There's a long Jewish tradition of fighting for justice. Zionism was actually never part of that. I'm Bert Cohen. With your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. The question has been out there for decades, perplexing the most thoughtful of liberal and left Jewish Americans. What about Israel? It seemed for quite some time Jewish readers of The Nation and other left publications felt divided and in a quandary, starting from a nearly united opposition to America's war in Vietnam and in favor of civil rights. When it came to the subject of Israel, oh no, that nation state was somehow exempt from criticism by this group that prided itself on being genuine anti-imperialist liberals as someone whose teenage years were shaped by my patriotism and opposition to colonialism, along with my dedication to Jewishness, the tradition of fighting racism, standing up against injustice, and knowledge of our cultural and religious anchor in ethics, I had a hard time with the state of Israel somehow being immune to principles that applied in other situations. How can one be liberal and Zionist at the same time? Why was the state of Israel exempted? How is it that the world came to equate Judaism with Zionism when among so many Jewish citizens of Western nations at the time of Israel's birth and declaration of nationhood, there was in fact a lot of anti-Zionism among the traditional Jewish left in America in the 1930s and 40s? How did we get here? How and why was so much history erased? Today's Keeping Democracy Alive is a conversation with scholar Benjamin Balthazar about uh, Jewish working-class anti-Zionism in the 1930s and 40s. Benjamin Balthazar is an associate professor of multi-ethnic literature at Indiana University. His recent article, When Anti-Zionism Was Jewish, Jewish Racial Subjectivity in the Anti-Imperialist Literally Left from the Great Depression to the Cold War. It examines the erased history of anti-Zionism among the Jewish working-class left of the 30s and 40s. Balthazar is a author is the author of a book of poems about the old Jewish left called Dedication, and an academic monograph titled Anti-Imperialist Modernism. He's working on a book about Jewish Marxist socialist thought and anti-Zionism in the 20th century. Thanks so much for being with us, Benjamin. Interesting subject. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about this. Well, you, you write, it's undeniably correct to say that without the Holocaust, there probably would not have been an Israel. Scholar Yehuda Bauer, head of the Department of Holocaust Studies at Hebrew University, found that the original Nazi plan was to, quote, evict all Jews from Germany. Hitler wanted them out. The shocked Rubli negotiations and the Nisko-Madagascar plans efforts to clear Europe of Jews had failed dismally before 1939. The last alternative was Einsatzgruppen plan for the mass murder of Jews, end of quote, from uh, that uh, head of the Department of Holocaust Studies at Hebrew University. Um, As as you point out, there was great opposition to creating a Jewish-dominated nation-state in Palestine prior to the Holocaust. But you say the Holocaust changed opinion universally, and everyone fell in line as soon as the details of the Holocaust were revealed, Zionist and anti-Zionist alike. End of your quote. Well, ever since 1948, when the state of Israel was declared, Zionists have always cited the Holocaust as justification for not questioning 
Israeli policies of ethnic cleansing and violent domination, which people on the left would otherwise condemn. You, you, no doubt you are well aware of this. What is your mm-hmm. response? Well, thank you very. One of the most interesting things I found about doing this research uh, into the old Jewish left of the 1930s and 40s, uh, by the old Jewish left, I mean a uh, very sizable presence of uh, Jewish Americans in the Communist Party and other socialist and Trotskyist parties of the time, was that uh, the Holocaust actually did not um, change left-wing opinion. Um, so I grew up in a fairly left-wing Jewish household, which is not a terribly uncommon experience in America. Um, <clears throat> and I think even though many members of my own household uh, were anti-Zionists or had serious questions about uh, the state of Israel and its policies, uh, I had sort of accepted this narrative, as you say, that the Holocaust had changed uh, global opinion and particularly changed Jewish opinion, that the need for a nation-state in mandate Palestine um, was undeniable. And what I found really interesting doing this research was that really up until 1947, uh, most of the Jewish left uh, were still questioning uh, the basic premise uh, of the necessity of a Jewish state in uh, then British colonial Palestine. Uh, Many of them actually favored um, staying in Europe. Uh, They actually thought, you know, we are Europeans. Uh, We demand full citizenship in Europe. Um, That's actually our human right. We don't want to go to another country. And many of them also wanted to come to the United States. Um, And uh, many of them had family, uh, many survivors of the Holocaust who were in displaced persons camps, uh, wanted to come to the United States and were actually barred by the U.S. government. Um, and actually the Zionists supported uh, the barring of uh, Jewish refugees after the Holocaust um, coming to the United States because they wanted them to go to Palestine and oh, wow. form part of the Yeshua. And so what actually changed um, much of the left-wing opinion, when I say left-wing opinion, I'm talking about, uh, you know, journals in the Communist Party and socialist orbits, what seemed to really change uh, communist and socialist opinion was actually the Soviet Union uh, coming out in favor of the state of Palestine or state of Israel uh, in mandate Palestine in late 1947. Andrei Gromyko uh, came mm-hmm. to the UN and gave this uh, dramatic speech saying, you know, the West had ignored the Holocaust. Uh, the Soviet Union has defeated the Nazis and we support uh, partition and the state of Israel. And of course, you have to remember, I mean, this is actually before mm-hmm. the Cold War really gets going. Um, and the Soviet Union was actually still uh, riding high on its prestige from defeating the Nazis. And, mm-hmm. and we forget now the Soviet Union uh, was actually probably, you know, was much more important oh, than the West in defeating the Nazis. And yes. the Battle of Stalingrad was really seen as a turning point. And so for the Soviet Union to embrace the state of Israel really changed the opinion of the Jewish left, uh, really for the next uh, 15, 20 years. Um, and, and I think in some ways the Soviet Union, which was seen Really, for a lot of Jewish leftists, is actually the real Jewish Zion. This is where, um, you know, basically, at least according to the propaganda, anti-Semitism had ended. This is the force that defeated the Nazis. Um, for the Soviet Union, the back state of Israel was sort of the end of the question. You know, so, okay, it yeah. is now unacceptable to have another opinion. So. Wow, yeah. 
interesting. The uh, the old Soviet Union, you know, which was uh, mm-hmm. it, it was sort of a Zion itself, and one can understand that. You yeah. know, if you just look at the, you know, idealist writings of of Marx and even Lenin, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I, and it's it's interesting that the Zionists supported, as you say, the ban on on immigration of Jews into the U.S. because they wanted to mm-hmm. steer them to Palestine. I suppose that could sort of be the case with uh, the Soviet Union, too. There was a little bit of history of anti-Semitism there for quite some time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so this, this is a lot to disentangle. Um, yeah, and so yeah. there's two things that you mentioned here. One, uh, yeah, I think for a lot of Jews in the 1930s and 40s, they actually saw, uh, first of all, the, the need to create a separate Jewish state as actually a sign of anti-Semitism. You mentioned the Nazis, of course, wanted to expel Jews to Madagascar, before embracing the final solution um, and, and the Judeo side of, of Europe. Um, and so I think for a lot of Jewish leftists, they saw uh, the creation of a separate Jewish state in a foreign country um, to be actually a sign of anti-Semitism. There were actually forms of Jewish nationalism that were quite popular before the war. There's a Jewish Bund, uh, which was the, uh, yeah, yeah, so the, the basically largest Jewish socialist organization before liquidated in the Holocaust. Uh, that advocated for uh, basically a deterritorized nation-state uh, in the territories where Jews lived. So this idea that Jews would have some cultural and political autonomy in the places where they had the most populous members, so Eastern Europe, <clears throat> the western parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, of course, there were Soviet experiments in the 1920s and 30s to create Jewish autonomous zones. And I think even in the Communist Party, there was a kind of nascent kind of Bundes Jewish nationalism, or sort of sense that the Jews uh, had an autonomous politics that uh, was aligned with the Communist Party, but a little bit separate. So Jews had their own fraternal orders, their own clubs, their own Yiddish language groups. And so there's a kind of a common sense, uh, you could say, Jewish cultural nationalism, or at least Jewish cultural pride. Um, but the idea that they should somehow be sort of shuffled off to a foreign country yeah. that they didn't live was actually considered quite insulting and a form of bourgeois nationalism rather than the sort of cultural pride that a lot of these working class socialist Jews uh, really embraced. Um, so that's one part of it. Um, they actually said a lot of Jews in the 1930s and 40s, particularly on the left, saw Zionism, uh, like I said, actually as, a, as, a, as in line with right-wing forces. And and there's this great essay by Robert Gessner, who was a Communist Party member and a cultural critic before he finally became a film critic at NYU, who called Jabotinsky, uh, the revisionist leader who basically sort of created the architecture for what we now think of as the state of Israel. He called him the little Nazi, the little Hitler on the Red Sea. And he really thought of Jabotinsky as a, as a right-winger and had nothing to do with the, the cultural politics of the Jewish left. Um, so that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it, Soviet Union's uh, in, intention for creating a Jewish state <laughs> in, in, in the late 1940s had nothing to do with sympathy for the Jewish people. It was all geopolitics. Their take was, uh, after the war, there's going to be a big scramble for the Middle East, and they were absolutely correct. Uh-huh. Uh, all the imperial powers are going to want to get in on the game. And they looked around and thought, who's the most powerful force in the Middle East? And they, they correctly uh, realized that it's actually the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement, is actually the most powerful military force in the Middle East. And a lot of the Jews in the Yishuv, uh, the Jewish settlement, were um, a huge number, but there was at least enough Jews who were aligned with the Communist Party in the 1930s. So they thought that perhaps uh, a state of Israel could join the Soviet camp. And for a while, it seemed like that might be a possibility. Of course, in the long history of geopolitical calculation, this was one of the worst <laughs> geopolitical calculations of Israel 
uh, does not end up being in the Soviet camp and ends up uh, joining very dramatically the American and Western camp um, uh, by the 50s. So, so, but that was the reason. Um, so, yeah, so this is, and there, there's no, no irony lost. Uh, a lot of people that in the Soviet Union, at the same time the doctor's plot was being hatched uh, and that there's a kind of rise of Stalinist anti Semitism, they're also backing the state of Israel. Which I think might sound very similar to a lot of Americans now. Uh, they say, well, why does Trump, who seems like an anti-Semite, back the state of Israel? Um, mm-hmm. That's interesting. I don't think it's any uh, odd thing. It's not so really odd. The, uh, the uh, evangelical right is very, very supportive of the state of Israel. But that has nothing to do with being pro-Jewish. No, nothing. Why do they support Israel so much? Is it the rapture? The, the far right? can't pretend to speak for, for the mind of, of uh, right-wing evangelicals, but my sense is that the, the right has a number of different agendas with Israel. Uh, yeah, the fate of the Jews uh, is, is not, for most of them, one of them. <laughs> so, so and I think that's one thing that, that I think has become increasingly disentangled, as we see uh, Richard Spencer famously saying yeah. he's a, a white Zionist, that this should cause a lot of Jews to pause. Why do all these far right-wingers, um, the Pentagon and evangelicals, suddenly support the state of Israel? Uh, the Jews have to repopulate the state of the land of Israel for um, their Messiah to come. The story is really political. I think for a lot of evangelicals, they see a great civilizational war between uh-huh. Islam and the West, and they see Israel sort of being the front of that sphere. And 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 I think uh, for the Pentagon, of course, I actually see it in fairly similar terms. Uh, as Henry Kissinger is uh, said to have said it, that Israel is our unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Middle East. Uh, okay. Basically, it's our forward operating base, um, and that's been true. I mean, Israel has has done a number of things to support the American Empire uh, that the American Empire does not want to have to say that it's done itself. Right. So everything from running guns to the Contras in the 1980s uh-huh. uh, to a- a- actively supporting the South African apartheid regime um, in the 70s and 80s, uh, up to the 90s, uh, bombing Syrian nuclear reactors or, or the, the plans to create nuclear reactors, uh, invading Lebanon to root out the PLO, threatening war with Hezbollah, you know, engaging in, in uh, covert bombing and assassination campaigns of Iranian uh, nuclear yes. scientists. These are all things that, that support the U.S. imperial designs in the Middle East, and I think Israeli uh, military planners are very aware that this is a kind of quid pro quo. They get American support and cover for their national design as long as they sort of provide this service. Um, and I think a lot of Jews are, are also kind of realizing this is maybe not the best position for us to be in, you know. So uh, being yet another middleman, um, hostile forces, is, is not historically a great place for Jews to be. <laughs> well, as as people who listen to the show regularly know that I, I often say, what I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. Uh, exactly, yes. Bert Cohen here on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Benjamin Balthazar, who has written about uh, when anti-Zionism was Jewish and uh, how it changed from in the 1930s and 40s. Jews were pretty much anti-Zionist. And as part of the American left back then, there was something called the Jewish Bund. I'd heard of a German Bund, but I'd never heard of that. What was the Jewish Bund about? Great question. Um, The Jewish Bund was a a socialist, transnational socialist organization in Eastern Europe. Around the turn of the century, um, along with a lot of great socialist ferment, uh, out of which Trotsky and Lenin Another great uh, Russian and Eastern European and Slavic revolutionaries arose uh, in the Russian Empire. They were probably most famous, actually, for the 1905 revolution in Russia. They were kind of the spearhead uh, and the best organized group in Russia 
leading a revolution against uh, Tsarist absolutism, uh, and also kind of after the disaster of the Russo-Japanese War, there's a kind of great sense that perhaps the Russian Tsar could fall. The Jewish Bund, they were nationalists of a kind. They were left-wing nationalists. They actually broke with uh, the Bolsheviks because the Bolsheviks wanted them to join the Bolshevik Party. Many of them actually, you know, were very sympathetic to Lenin, um, uh, very sympathetic to Trotsky, very sympathetic to the Bolshevik Revolution, but they wanted their own cultural autonomy. Uh, they did not want to take orders from uh, you know, the Bolshevik Central Committee. You know, and so the turn of the century in Eastern Europe and in the, in the Russian Empire, uh, Jews were a very persecuted minority. I mean, we talk, we're talking pogroms that oh, killed yeah. thousands of people, right? So uh, every year. And, um, and so you can could, you could imagine why Jews were distrustful of uh, non-Jewish revolutionary Europe, particularly because there were a lot of anti-Semites, um, and particularly the Socialist Party, uh, not the, the Leninist wing. But, you know, Karl Kotsky had famously advocated that Jews will assimilate and cease being Jews. Mm. Uh, and Karl Kotsky was one of the most famous Jewish socialists of the turn of the century. And so a lot of Jews really felt that they really needed their own socialist revolutionary organization even though they were, they saw themselves in line with Lenin uh, and Trotsky's Bolshevik Revolution. And they actually felt that the revolution would help uh, end anti-Semitism. And Lenin had spoken very mm-hmm. forcefully against anti-Semitism. And, and a lot of them still didn't trust the Russian Revolution. And so there uh, continued to be uh, this, this debate uh, really up until the Holocaust when the Bund was, was really li- liquidated. The, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, you could say it was the last gasp of the bun before uh, they vanished. There are still traces here and there. But why is it important to this question of Zionism? They really saw the Zionists as right-wing nationalists. So they were left-wing nationalists and saw themselves in line with the global, global proletariat, but they wanted their own leadership. Um, and so, again, you could sort of see them as maybe similar to the Black Panther Party. Yes, we're in line with the global revolution, but we want our own leadership, right? Um, uh, and they saw the Zionists as right-wing nationalists, um, and they wanted to have cultural autonomy and fight for liberation where they live. They felt that mm-hmm. was a proper Marxist position. They thought the Zionists who want to go and live in a foreign country and align themselves with British imperialism yes. was exactly the opposite of everything they believe, right? And so they would see what happened with Israel now. They would say, yes, this is exactly what we predicted, right? <laughs> you have a, a right-wing nation-state that is chauvinistic and racist and aligned with American imperialism, they would say it's exactly what we expected. And so I think it's really important to remember the Bund because there's a lot of people say, well, you know, it's either or. Either you are not Jewish at all and you totally assimilate into, you know, all of Western culture, uh, or you're a Jewish nationalist and you support wow. Zionism. And the Bund is this kind of middle position saying, yes, you can, you know, have Jewish pride and, and celebrate your, your Jewishness and Jewish left-wing history, um, but not be a Zionist. And so I think there's been an active and um, passionate rediscovery of the Bund and, and their kind of left-wing, deterritorialized, transnational Jewish left-wing nationalism. I would also say one last thing, too, it's important to note. Uh, so the Bund kind of dissolved after 1917, right? So because so many, so many members of the Bund joined the Bolshevik Revolution, but it's really important to note that the Bolshevik Revolution actually absorbed a lot of Bunda's philosophy. And so really up until Stalin's kind of counter-revolution in the 1930s, mm-hmm. the Soviet Union had backed a lot of the Yiddish theater, uh, Yiddish cultural production, um, and really kind of backed a lot of the kind of cultural demands of the Bund in the early parts of the revolution. And there's this kind of flowering of Yiddish culture in Moscow. So the Bund, even though it keeps being kind of active political force, and I mean, it's still around, but you know, it was no longer the kind of revolutionary dynamo that it was. My own grandfather was not a Bundist, but he, he admired the Bund. Uh, and I think, you know, Trotsky came to the same position late in his life, that even though he, he 
uh, argued avidly against the Bundes' separatist position, came to recognize the sort of need for Jewish cultural autonomy, um, particularly in the face of fascism. I guess it's too late for me to sign up for the Bund. I don't know. It sounds <laughs> very appealing. It sounds great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the idea yeah. of, of nationalism, it, it bugs mm-hmm. me quite a bit. It really grew up in the yeah. 19th century, of, and, and people mm-hmm. wanting their, their to be culturally distinct within these vast uh, parts of, of Europe that, you know, the borders were changing all the time. You know, Germany mm-hmm. hadn't been one nation it, you know, it'd been a whole bunch of nations, same with Italy, etc. And and people felt some, uh, you know, allegiance to their own culture. So the nationalism that, that came out of the 19th century led to the industrialized killing haulers of the First mm-hmm. World War. Of course, mm-hmm. m- of the many belligerents in that war was Britain. You write that on some level, mm-hmm. you could say Zionism is a toxic mis- mixture of European nationalism and British imperialism. What were the British interests in that region, then part of the Ottoman Empire? How did the Balfour Declaration fit in with British imperialism? That's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, so the first thing I'd say, I mean, I think one of the ways to understand uh, yeah, Zionism is that it comes out of this kind of European minority nationalism. Um, you know, everyone wants a nation, right? Uh, uh, and, and the idea to have a nation is to really exist. And, of course, um, and of course there's a long history of anti-colonial nationalism as well. Uh, and, and so this idea somehow that um, one needs a nation, nation state to belong to a nation state, to have one's own nation state, uh, 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 has been this, this outgrowth uh, of 19th century cultural movements in Europe. And yeah, much of it is, is quite right-wing and, yeah. and, and dangerous and, oh, yeah. and leads me say, to, the, to the killing fields of World War I. Um, and, and so, yeah, so this debate even about the Bund, you know, gets into a lot of questions about, um, you know, were the Bund right to be nationalists? And, and a lot of revolutionaries uh, in the Bolshevik Revolution said, yeah, we're done with nationalism for all the reasons that you say. And even your nationalism, which might be a nicer, left-wing nationalism, is still nationalism. We right. don't want anything else. What no part of it. Um, but yeah, so that's the other question about um, uh, the Balfour Declaration. Yeah, so 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 Britain, of course, uh, was you know uh, up until the dissolution of its empire, the largest global empire, and really the the um, purveyor of capitalist uh, economics and values and monopoly throughout the world. Uh, and so their interests in uh, sort of taking over the Ottoman Empire were mm-hmm. quite quite obvious, right? You know, they wanted to expand the British Empire, which had everything to do with. Uh, what empires have to do with, right? So it has to do with great power politics. It has to do with oil. It has to do um, with, you know, backing the pound sterling. Uh, it has to do with, um, you know, exporting uh, British capital. It has to do with opening markets, on and on and on. And, and so they saw the defeat of the Ottoman Empire after World War One as this great opportunity, right, um, uh, to basically expand into the Middle East. And, and, you know, um, you could say the American Empire has kind of taken off where the British Empire had left off in the Middle East. And, and I think the British Empire's goals and the American Empire's goals are, are quite synonymous. And so, um, yeah, so the, the, the British uh, Empire had, uh, very similar to the Soviet Union, as we mentioned earlier, had uh, geopolitical designs in the Middle East. And they felt that it would be very useful to them to have uh, a Jewish nation state aligned with Great Britain. Uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you have to understand also Balfour is an anti-Semite, um, a, a profound anti-Semite, and believes that Jews mm. had no 
real home in Great Britain, and he found it would be very convenient if the Jews in Great Britain all left in mass <laughs> to go to mandate Palestine. He mm-hmm. also believed that Jews were racially inferior and mentally, while while clever and and uh, mischievous, uh, were racially and mentally inferior and could never threaten the British Empire because they would never have the manly stuff uh, out of which a nation-state could come. So, so Balfour's uh, uh, um, uh, designs on the Middle East and his plans for the Jews, um, can, you know, are, are are not for the well-being of, of the Jewish people. And I think a lot of, again, going back to the 1930s and 40s, a lot of Jewish communists knew that. Um, they knew that England was an empire, and they knew that Mandate Palestine and the Yishuv were there um, uh, at the behest and the permission of uh, the British Empire, and they felt that Zionism was a handmaid of Western imperialism, and and they felt not only was that you know antithetical to their value, to their values as communists, um, but it was also bad for them, you know, so-called you know as they say bad for the Jews. So um, and uh, and so yeah, so so I think uh, uh, they they felt that Balfour uh, <laughs> was, was was not their friend, and and you know the Socialist Workers Party was probably the most militant. Uh, anti-Zionist socialist organization, uh, even more militant um, than the Communist Party. The Communist Party kind of kind of split the difference. Uh, there was an active Jewish Communist Party, uh, actually active Arab Communist Party. Uh, it mandated Palestine in the 30s and 40s, and they mm. hoped that um, you know that the the Jews and the Arabs could get together, oust the British, and create a binational state. But the 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 Socialist Workers Party were just like. You know, we don't want anything to do with this whatsoever. Uh, and Jews really can get out of, get out of Palestine. And, and, and their only role basically is, is to, you know, if they have anything to do there, is to, to, uh, uh, defeat the British, um, and, and, and basically, uh, follow the leadership of the, of the Arab revolutionaries. So. Mm. It is yeah. such a fascinating yeah. history. And I, you know, as, as you've yeah. said, you know, the Jewish communists saw themselves not as citizens of a nation state, but as part of, a, of the global proletariat, part of the global working class, mm-hmm. part of the global revolution. So Zion, Zionism in the 1930s and 40s, I guess, was seen as something uh, part of the uh, Western plan and it was not particularly pro-Jewish, for sure. And why and how was yeah. this history erased? Oh, uh, yeah. So the first part, of course, uh, yeah. So, so there's a lot of different critiques of Zionism that come out of the 1930s and 40s left and I think, you know, reemerge in different moments, um, in kind of left-wing Jewish history. Um, uh, but yeah, so one of them, as you allude to, was the notion that there's a kind of anti-nationalist position to begin with. We're part of a global proletariat and that our, our dreams are not realized by a nation state, let alone a nation state. Um, as yeah. part of an imperialist country. Um, but to your other question, how did it get erased? So yeah. The erasure of, of Jewish anti-Zionism on the left is, a, is uh, not answerable by, by one thing. Um, so we'll have to, there's, there's a lot of disentangle there. So one part right. of it, as I mentioned, is the Soviet Union embracing the, the state of Israel in 1947, uh, actually even shipping arms uh, to the issue of through Czechoslovakia uh, to help uh, fight the war in 1948. Um, and so, of course, once the Soviet Union um, backs the state of Israel, a lot of the Jewish left fall in line. And you can really just see this like night and day. So 1947, in the summer, you know, Jewish Life, which was the Communist Party Jewish Journal, is still backing the binational state and, you know, calling, uh, you know, the Ergun fascists and, uh, you know, calling for um, uh, Jewish and Arab communists to unite together to oust the British and create uh, one single state for everybody 
And then, you know, boom, as soon as uh, Gromyko makes his announcement in 1947, uh, it's just literally like night and day, you know. Um, And uh, uh, so that's one part of it. Uh, The other part of it in the United States, of course, is the Cold War um, and and the Red Scare. Uh, So I think we can't really underestimate the damage and the erasure of the Cold War uh, on the memory of the old left. Uh, So, you know, not only were you know, countless numbers of left-wing organizations banned. Um, uh, people were leaving the Communist Party in droves because it was literally, uh, you could be arrested for doing so. The Smith Act functionally made the Communist Party yeah. illegal. Um, and of course, you had the, the execution of the Rosenbergs, yes. right? Uh, which was, which was understood in my family as a Jewish pogrom. Oh, uh, yes. that, that this is, this is what happens if you're a public Jewish communist, you'll be executed by mm-hmm. the state. Yes. Um, and of course, it becomes very clear by the early 1950s. Um, the U.S. was a little unclear about whether or not they wanted to align with Israel in the beginning, but it's becoming clear by the 1950s, the U.S. saw Israel increasingly as, as a, as a Cold War ally against the Soviet Union and against Arab nationalism. And so um, embracing Zionism became a way to kind of, uh, A, you know, kind of prove your loyalty actually not to Israel, but to the United States, and prove that you're a good American and not a dirty communist. Um, and I think the other part of this um, that is, uh, I think, really important to try to disentangle as well is that this, in the 1950s, is also witnessing um, you could say Jewish whiteness, uh, the kind of beginnings really of uh, Jews being uh, racially, you could say, less smart, <laughs> uh, you know, moving out into the suburbs, you know, leaving right. the big cities, moving out to the suburbs, uh, finally able to gain entrance into elite colleges, uh, you know, uh, famous, famous, well-known Jews joining the Defense, defense Department, uh, getting positions in prominent universities like Lionel Trilling, et cetera. And so I think that there is this kind of mass evacuation um, that happens in the 1950s and early 1960s from radical anti-imperialism to a kind of normative Jewish liberalism. And, uh, and, and aligning oneself with Israel uh, became a way, particularly after the U.S. really kind of backs the Israeli state in the 60s uh, full force, became a way basically to sort of signify um, this new kind of assimilationist rise. And, and, and when the New West emerges in the 1960s, um, you know, there's a kind of uh, reaction among the new Jewish New Leftists and SDS and SWP and a lot of radical organizations to embrace uh, anti-Zionism, much like their radical forebears 20 years before. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the Jews who are now the sort of new part of this American establishment saw it as very dangerous, you know, and, and really really uh, 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 kind of lined up around Israel in the 1960s, really, I think, to defend this idea that Jews are really, you know, part of the American fabric and and now have some actual, you could say, kind of middle-class normative white status to defend. And I think that really becomes a kind of thought line that kind of emerges in the 1960s with the rise of the new left, um, you have people like Mark Rudd, um, Bernadine Dorn, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mickey Flax, Dick Flax, uh, SDS, the Klonskis, um, backing uh, anti-Zionism as part of sort of this Jewish new left, as, as you know, good anti-imperialists would, but I think also as a kind of reaction against uh, their parents' aggressive kind of new middle classness, right? Um, and saying, you know, yes, you, you want to embrace this kind of new normative Americanism, and that's really bad, and we want actually to rebel against that uh, for for not just political reasons, but also the sense that uh, 
this is not really where where Jews ought to be, you know. So. Interesting. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Benjamin Balthazar, and we're talking about uh, when anti-Zionism was Jewish. Jewish uh, in the 1930s and 40s, largely, I mean, the left of uh, Jewish Americans were, uh, you know, anti-Zionist, and I can understand that. And I have the sense, we're talking about you know, the middle class and moving out to the suburbs. I have the sense that with Jewish Americans mainly letting go of old, more orthodox traditions in the, you know, assimilations of the 1950s, people wanted to mm-hmm. blend in for sure. Support mm-hmm. for the state of Israel, I've w- always wondered, perhaps kind of stood in its place in terms of something that could define us as Jews. You ponder if the turn towards Zionism was understood as something that would normalize Jews in a post-war era. I wonder if you could say more about that. Yeah, uh, so so um, the Rabbi uh, Brant Rosen has uh, spoken very powerfully about this. Um, so Brant Rosen is the rabbi of a relatively new congregation in Chicago, where I live, uh, that has embraced uh, non-Zionism as its foundational principle, that uh, we do not um, uh, think bowing to military powers is part of Jewish values uh, or Jewish spiritual or cultural traditions. And, uh, you know, he says, you know, there's something that happened in the 1950s and 1960s uh, with, you know, basically the Israeli flag, uh, along with the American flag, uh, became placed basically, uh, you know, behind the Bima, right, you know, with the Torah. Uh, I know, and yeah. Yeah, and that, 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 you know, basically Zionism became part of the Seder plate. And, and for most of Jewish history, I don't mean just American Jewish history, I mean thousands of years of Jewish history, the defining aspect of diasporic thinking was that you do not identify with military powers. Um, you do not identify with nation-states brought mm. by force. Um, the, the Jewish scholar Daniel Boyerman has this really lovely essay on diasporic thinking, and he said, you know, that that uh, Jews had always felt that, that uh, you know, back to Roman times, that the kind of militaristic nationalism was, for them, the antithesis of, of Jewish diaspora thinking and Jewish cultural, religious, spiritual uh, identity, and, and is really an abomination. And so, so yeah, I, I think that there's the, that um, you could think of, of, of having the flag, right, uh, at the center of the bina, um, as a kind of normalization, right? We're now like everyone else. Right, we have a flag, and you know what makes Jews, what has made Jews uh, different, you know, from many other groups uh, throughout the ages is that you know we did not have a nation state. Right, we're diasporic people, we're right. mobile people. Um, right. We exist across borders. Uh, we have a this portable religion, right, based on a book, uh, and um, yeah. and you know that that has you could say left wing flavors, has right wing flavors, has no political flavors at all, but has really defined some of the Jewish experience. Um, and, and so the, for, for Brant Rosen and for Daniel Boyer and I think for myself, the idea of having a nation state at the center of your religious practice is something that, uh, kind of makes us like everyone else. And, and well, that's very appealing to be every, like everyone else. It's very appealing to assimilate, uh, that is also antithetical to thousands of years uh, of Jewish tradition, which is, uh, that basically the nation state is, um, for lack of a better word, goyish. You know, um, it's 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 what the 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 uh, national powers 
engage in and it is antithetical to your spiritual identity as a people. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really been lovely about this moment is that I think we're starting to see um, not just the Jewish left uh, embrace in anti-Zionism, whether it's SDS in the 1960s and the Socialist Workers' Party or the Communist Party in the 1930s and early 1940s, where I think we're also starting to see a kind of new Jewish religious uh, and spiritual practice um, uh, really uh, define itself as anti-Zionist, along with, you know, Brent Rosen said at Chicago and uh, other temples that have aligned with Jewish Voice for Peace, which is um, yes. yeah, a pro-BDS uh, Jewish organization in the U.S. Yeah, I do... I, I've often been perplexed at that at, at the uh, you know Zionism. I I like being Jewish, the culture, the religion, mm-hmm. the spiritual dedication to ethics and justice. Uh, but you know, isn't I was I believe we're supposed to be where we are, something like that. <laughs> and I I, yeah. I remember seders at my grandparents talking about next year in Jerusalem. I I always wondered about that. You explain the sentiment. Through much of Jewish history, Israel, in quotes, was understood as a kind of cultural and messianic longing, but there was no desire to actually physically move there. So what do they, what is this next year in Jerusalem? I mean, they were never, I didn't want to move there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's a a great question. And and like I said, I want to, I want to just Put this at a little bit of padding. I'm not a theologian, right? So my my subject specialty, you know, is on the history of the of the left uh, and and in general and the Jewish left in particular. Um, but yeah, uh, my 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 basic sort of thumbnail understanding of this um, is that uh, uh, this this phrase you say next year in Jerusalem on the Seder plate was always about um, uh, this kind of messianic longing for the next world, right? For when the Mashiach comes. Um, and and the next year in Jerusalem was, next year, let there be peace in the world, right? Uh, next year, let all the problems of the world be solved. Let all the people be free. So you have to remember the Seder, uh-huh. as we were talking about the Seder, sure. the Seder is a story of freedom, right? And, yes. and a lot of progressive Jews, really for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, have understood the call for uh, Jewish freedom uh, from uh, bondage in Egypt, really to be a call for for freedom of all people, Absolutely, right? Um, yes. uh, you know, people people talk about you know the Freedom Theater in the 1960s as being this sort of new idea, uh, but no, I mean there's like socialist agendas going all the way back to the 19th century that have interpreted the Theater this way, um, and so next year in Jerusalem became this idea of you know next year let us all be in peace. But yeah, nobody actually really thought we're going to like physically pack up and go to Jerusalem. Um, right. And I think that there's theological reasons for that, uh, as well as very practical reasons for that. Um, for the Orthodox, uh, uh, you're not actually supposed to physically bring the Mashiach yourself, right? Um, that is, you're not to actually go to Jerusalem before the Mashiach has arisen is actually technically speaking, heresy, right? Yes. This is what Sabbatai they did, um, I believe, can't remember, I think it was the 17th century, uh, was actually try to go to Jerusalem and uh, before the Mashiach has arrived, and he's considered a, literally an apostate, you know? Um, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, uh, you're actually, the, the way to bring the Mashiach is to perfect the world as it exists now, and once you've perfected the world as it exists now, then the Mashiach will come and recognize your efforts, right? It's always something that that um, that uh, 
uh, was left ultimately up to God. So, so mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, again, I'm not a theologian, right. and, and so most of my interests, right, is sort of the political, um, the, uh, political import. But I don't think actually these things are really at odds. I think the Jewish left-wing critique of Zionism always on some level carries with it uh, this kind of religious critique of Zionism. The religious critique of Zionism is that, you know, our job is to repair the world, right? And once we are engaged in the work of repairing the world, the Mashiach may recognize our efforts, right, uh, uh-huh. and finish it for us. Um, and I think that's very similar, actually, to the religious idea. And so I think these, again, a lot of Jewish Marxists would say, you know, we're not religious, we don't have any truck with that stuff, um, and if we said that actually you're just enacting <laughs> you know, the theological idea of bringing the Messiah, they would bristle. Yeah. But I think these are actually rather aligned, aligned concepts in some ways. Um, and, uh, uh, and there are still, you know, as, as uh, you know, some people are aware, some people are not, you know, there are uh, obviously some very Zionist members of the Orthodox, uh, but there are also, you know, many yes. anti-Zionist members of the Orthodox as well. Uh, the, some of the Satmars, for instance. Um, and uh, actually, in New York City, I, I've seen them actually training, uh, like training for um, civil disobedience, you know, uh, during, say, for instance, you know, the, the bombing of Gaza in 2014, it was, you know, as a sort of California, West Coast, you know, <laughs> LA, you know, LA, Southern California raised Jewish person, uh, seeing these New York Jews in, in giant hats and long frock coats right. and civil disobedience <laughs> was kind of a sight, you know, so, um, uh, uh, but yeah, so anyway, I, well, I, I wonder, yeah. yeah, I wonder about, uh, you know, so many people across the world, when they think of Israel, they think Judaism, Israel, same thing. It is yeah. not. You know, there are no, people no. Uh, all over, you know, people who know, you know, people in the Muslim nations and the nations surrounding Israel that, uh, you know, and people see this militaristic, nationalistic uh, uh, country, this state, and, you know, I I'm Jewish. I like being Jewish. And it's like, I'm an American. You know, I, I don't have, but I, I wonder how the, the confusion, the, the conflation of Judaism with Israel, I wonder how that's affected, you know, and I wonder if people back in the 30s and 40s, Jewish people on the left uh, thought about that as well. Yeah. Well, first, the historical, for me, always the history first. Sure. Um, so, Good. yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, um, in the 1930s and 40s, uh, Zionists were a very small minority. I mean, it's one thing to really, really point out. Um, so, you know, Robert Gesson, the critic I mentioned earlier, uh, said, you know, in America, 1% of Jews are, are Zionists. And so so the common sense actually was was quite the opposite, is that Zionism was not Jewish at all. Most Jews were, were not Zionists for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, so, you know, I, we've gone over some of the left critiques of Zionism, but also even, you know, liberal Jews, uh, such as Elmer Berger in the um, American Jewish Council, uh, you know, a really important reform rabbi, a liberal, um, felt that uh, basically, uh, kind of you said, that Jews are Americans and, mm-hmm. and our place is here, and, and yes. uh, uh, there's going to be this, this other foreign nation that declares that it's for all of the Jews that's going to create accusations of dual loyalty and will be bad right. for us, et cetera. Yeah, so, so, and, and so that, that was actually the, the common sense. I mean, we think that now is a kind of a radical position. That was actually the common sense in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to oppose Zionism. And, uh, I think a lot of people, myself included, really got started 
out of a solidarity with Palestinians. And, uh, you know, I was a, a young uh, activist on campus and was, you know, opposed to U.S. military invasion mm-hmm. of Iraq and, uh, you know, had gone at, one of my first big protests that I went to was, you know, against the IMF um, in uh, 19, 1999 or 2000, uh, you know, and saw the IMF as this sort of, you know, imperialist capitalist yes. force uh, colonizing the world. And, yes. and so I remember, you know, going to an SJP, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine protest and thinking, yes, you know, here are these Palestinians who are being colonized um, by this military power. And it only occurred to me later, and it's kind of funny, it only really occurred to me later, like, Oh right, this is also bad for the Jews too. You know, if, if we're associated, and, and Israel promotes the association, right? Uh, you know, every Jew uh, can get a plot of land, you know, get an apartment in Israel, uh, can actually literally kick a Palestinian out of their house yes. uh, if they want to, and um, and so we are we are implicated, whether mm-hmm. we like it or not, um, we're implicated in these crimes just for the very fact that Israel says it stands for us, and and so I think you know we we. I think on some level, we are organizing um, the extent that we are, you know, organize or vote. We can articulate this in a couple of different ways. I think it's very important always to sort of center um, uh, and talk about that. Yes, I mean, you know, really, the real victims here are, are Palestinians who've not yes. denied a homeland, uh, who have, land has been stolen, who've been exiled from their country, who face a military occupation. But I think it's also very important to articulate our own interests because we're not just passive allies. We actually have an interest in uh, the democratization uh, of Israel, for the country being a country for everybody equally, and for some restitution to be given to Palestinians who lost their land. Um, And then we have a a self-interest in that as well. I I think uh, for Jews in the diaspora, um, yeah, uh, uh, it is is very threatening to have a country that says it represents us committing atrocities uh, uh, and... uh, Uh, in our name, and and that that is I, I I well I of course think you know and vociferously protest the conflation of Jews in Israel or even all Israelis in the crimes of the, of the Israeli right, state. Right. Um, uh, you know, there's no collective. We, we we are against the idea of collective punishment. You can understand why people might get a little confused and think, well, you know, yes, all Jews are Zionists, all Jews are imperialists, all Jews are racist, um, mm. and and so yeah, so I, I actually feel uh, you know. Even in in my own activist life, uh, that um, uh, um, there there can some, there can be an understandable confusion that uh, I, I feel actually makes my life again. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about me, but makes my life harder. You know, uh, like no, no I question. personally, this like I went from being like you said, you know, an anti-Zionist out of solidarity with Palestinians. Like, no, actually, you're just. Making like I, I, there was a Seth Rogen, um, you know, brouhaha recently, and uh, a lot of my friends on the left uh, were mildly irritated uh, because they felt that you know here is this American comedian uh, who's not censoring Palestinians and not talking about you know the imperial violence of, of Israel and just kind of talking. But I, I really kind of identified on some level with the statement. It's like, yeah, Israel has actually not been good for us. There's nothing yes. good about it. We just can lie to and. And uh, the sooner it becomes a democracy, the sooner the better, you know, for everybody. I would think so. And for those who may have yeah. just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, uh, Benjamin uh, Balthazar, uh, Associate Professor of Multi-Ethnic Literature at Indiana University. And we're talking about when anti-Zionism was Jewish. Uh, and there's there's a lot to that. Now, Peter Beinart recently came out mm-hmm. w- around to an opinion 
I've had for a long time that the two-state yeah. solution is dead. What is inevitable mm -hmm. is a one-state solution based on equality, democracy for all. There really is no center anymore, I don't think. There's, there's no liberal yeah. Zionist position anymore. Uh, what, what's next, do you think? I mean, what about this, uh, this article by uh, Peter? Is that, I think it's yeah. inevitable. Yeah, I think it's inevitable too. Yeah, um, I, the, the the article by uh, Peter, you know, he was op-ed in um, New York Times, and also a longer version of it in, in Jewish Current. Um, yeah, in some ways, uh, I think it was a, a belated. Uh, so you know, Biner has long been a uh, liberal Zionist, um, and you know, has opposed the BDS movement. Uh, so my first encounter uh, with Biner in his writing uh, was when uh, the American Studies Association, of which I'm a part. Um, uh, took a BDS vote, a boycott, divestment, and sanctions vote against uh, Israeli crimes in 2012. And while Beinart uh, was very clear, he did not think the American Studies Association uh, was anti-Zionist, very, very forcefully spoke out against BDS. And so Beinart had been kind of, you'd say, on the left wing or liberal liberal edge of Zionism uh, as long as I've been aware that, that he exists. Um, and, you know, comes from a prominent uh, liberal Jewish family, and so for him to finally come out against uh, two uh, a two-state solution, two solution yeah. is uh, really kind of a watershed in a lot of ways. And and so, you know, you could say at one level it's 70 years too late. would have been nicer if uh, people oh, wow. had realized this a long time ago. Um, it really is kind of recognition that liberal Zionism is dead, right? So for a long time there really was um, – and this is one thing I think it's important to make clear uh, – while there's always – to some degree, a mystification. Um, there really was for a long time a sense that Israel was a progressive country. Yes. Right? So there's the yes. kibbutzim, yes. you know, the collective socialist moves farms. Uh, Israel yeah. is run by a labor go labor government. Um, you know, uh, uh, was fairly progressive on women's rights. Uh, was a very unionized country. And so there is, and again, this was always, I would say, a mystification. I think Israeli leftism was always predicated on not only Palestinian exclusion, but the exclusion of Jews of color at Sephardi and Mitzrayim Jews. Uh, and also, uh, I think it was a commitment that was always skin deep and was always ready to founder uh, on the contradictions of a federal colonial project. But nonetheless, that was a perception, especially by American Jews, who wanted to square their liberalism. Yeah. And most American Jews are liberals or leftists. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, Jews are the largest voting bloc for the Democratic Party outside of uh, African-Americans. Um, and has been, and you know, probably for you know uh, the foreseeable future will be. Hope so. So they've always wanted a way to square their liberalism with their fondness for this this nation state, and um, and that's that's over. Uh, yeah. You know, so you know the la the labor government has fallen apart. Um, uh, the right has been in the driver's seat in oh, Israel okay. for a long time, and what has been uh, quiet uh, the genocidal and expansionist foundations of the Israeli state to really take over all of Palestinian land and subordinate all Palestinians to occupation of second-class citizenship is now um, basically common sense in Israel. Uh, the annexation of the West Bank, um, uh, the declaration of the annexation by the West Bank, by uh, the Likud yes. government, is sort of the last straw. And so I think for the what, what's happened is for more perceptive liberals like Beinart, and Beinart is a perceptive person and a very good writer and a smart guy, um, he realizes that liberal Zionism is over and you have to take a side, right? And, and so he's finally rather belatedly taken the side um, mm. that uh, the old revisionist project of Zionism, of a nation-state, 
for only the Jews uh, is over in his bed. And and the funny thing is, like, you think, like, that really shouldn't be too much to ask. Like, like we're only asking that Israel become a democracy, yes. right? Like, like everywhere else, right? You know, and people think, oh, the Jews are going to be thrown into the sea. People said the same thing about South Africa, right? You know, oh, nah. the whites are going to be slaughtered. Uh, you know, there's going to be a civil war, uh, there's going to be bloodshed. And yeah, South Africa is, you know, not a, a, a utopia. It's a neoliberal capitalist state. But, um, but none of those, those, those nightmare, right. uh, uh, projections happened. And, and it's way more democratic than it used to be, right? Uh, and that's all we're asking is that Israel be a democracy like everywhere else. Just reaching back a little bit in history, uh, mm-hmm. You say that after 1945, there was a long moment in which there were other possibilities, another future could have happened. Mm-hmm. What could that have been after the Holocaust? Well, so uh, I, I almost kind of want to write a, you know, I, I, I kind of toe the book, you know, um, there's a book by uh, Peter Fray's sort of the four four futures of capitalism. And I sometimes want to write a book like the, the four hit, the four the four possibilities of Zionism um, mm. or, or Jews after the Holocaust. Um and so, yeah, there are a lot of possibilities. So one possibility would have been, I think, the most just possibility and the most reasonable possibility was that uh, Jews be allowed to stay where they were. Yes. Um, and, and one of the reasons why Jews wanted to leave is they were really not welcome back to their home countries after the Holocaust. There were, you know, half, there were, I don't know, many hundreds of thousands, uh, half a million, 700,000 survivors of the Holocaust in these dis- horrible displaced prison camps all throughout right. Europe. And um, if they, I think if they had been welcomed back to their uh, countries, um, that, uh, you know, they were actual pogroms after the Holocaust in Europe, uh, which is kind of hard to believe mm. when Jews were trying to return to, uh, to Poland and to Hungary, uh, there were actual pogroms after the Holocaust. And of uh, course, you also have uh, the Stalinist government, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, ramped up its own anti-Semitism. Yes. Uh, you know, so, yeah, so the Soviet Union had a very, for a much longer conversation, the Soviet Union had a very ambivalent uh, relationship with uh, Jews and anti-Semitism uh, throughout its entire history. So it's absolutely very true that the Soviet Union, Jews experienced a lot of social advancement, uh, you know, possibilities for uh, economic uh, and social mobility to the Soviet Union that were never possible during the Russian Empire. However, the same though, uh, Stalin was an anti-Semite and yes. certainly acted upon that. And that those contradictory things have to be held kind of in the same frame when we talk about the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union embarked on its own anti-Semitic project oh, yeah. uh, after uh, after World War II. And then, of course, the United States, uh, which was the other possibility. So, okay, so they can't, so Jews in displaced persons can't can't uh, stay in Europe because they're not being offered full citizenship or their lives are still endangered. A lot of Jews wanted to come to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States was considered kind of the promised land uh, for a lot of Jews, and but also in a very practical way, a lot of Eastern European Jews had extended family in the United States. Right. Um, there's this giant immigration wave, of course, uh, around the turn of the century, yes. uh, and it would have been very, very possible uh, for for America to absorb literally hundreds of thousands of Jews after World War II. I mean, America is a giant country. And um, and the United States refused uh, and yes. uh, collab- collaborated um, yep. to either keep Jews in displaced persons camps or to send them to, to Israel. All of that said, on the same note, there also could have been, so let's take all of that as a given, that the anti-Semitism of Europe and America is a given, you could have had a binational state in Palestine. Uh, that is what a lot of the communist parties um, around the world up to that point were advocating. But yes, there is a Jewish settlement in in, in Palestine uh, and it could be shared governance sure. uh, with, um, uh, and of course people say, well, the Arabs are trying to throw the Jews into the sea. If uh, there really wanted to be peace, 
Um, you could have invited the UN uh, into Mandate Palestine. You could have invited oh, yeah. peacekeepers. There could have been a lot of things that could have been done to slowly build trust and peace uh, between uh, the peoples of, of, of Palestine. And none of that was tried at all. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was tried and failed. None of it was even no. tried. Uh, and the Yeshiva opted for war. Um, and and uh, they, they gambled that they could win it, and they did. So. Well, I, w- I just wanted to say, I, you know, with, with Trumpism, Black Lives Matter, all these different things going on, I get the sense this might be a good moment to reconnect to the history of Jewish-American anti-Zionism. And there are a number of organizations standing in defense of rights for the Palestinians, and there's a Jewish Voice for Peace. I'm not sure which other ones there are, but I wonder if you could uh, just uh, uh, share some of that and uh, maybe about... uh, Absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, um, so I'm really glad you mentioned Black Lives Matter. Uh, One of the other developments that I think you've been seeing in the last uh, decades, although this obviously goes back to the 1960s at least, uh, is um, uh, uh, an equation of the black freedom struggle in the United States with the Palestinian freedom struggle. People say that Israel is an apartheid state, it's a racial state um, uh, for its uh, 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 Jewish majority, or actually, I guess, in the entire uh, um, uh, area of Palestine minority, uh, that Israel is an apartheid state and that there is um, more than just a similarity um, yes. of kind between the state of African Americans and the state of Palestinians. And so there has been a large black solidarity movement uh, with Palestine. Yes. Uh, that's really immersed since Ferguson, where we immersed from Ferguson. But we also have to go back to the 1960s. So SNCC, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also released a statement of solidarity with Palestine in the 1960s because they saw uh, this, this analogy between uh, the apartheid state of Israel and uh, U.S. racism and Jim Crow in the United States, uh, here in the U.S. Um, and so uh, I think it's very important to, to, to note. Um, and, yeah, it, uh, in terms of... Um, uh, Palestine Solidarity Organizations, of course, there's Jewish Voice for Peace, which is one of the largest, um, and you don't actually have to be Jewish. Uh, it, is, mm. it is mostly Jewish, but you don't actually have to be Jewish uh, to join it. Uh, everyone is welcome. Um, and uh, there's also uh, other organizations, such as If Not Now, oh, um, yes, which is not, good yeah, not as, uh, uh, I would say, far left as uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, but are doing really good anti-application work. Um, uh, they, you know, did sit-ins against APAC a couple of years ago that were really nice. dramatic and I think effective. Um, and uh, also uh, really uh, helped push Bernie Sanders uh, to issue statements on the occupation. Indeed. Um, and yeah, and and to criticize the Democratic Party. I think I, I think actually sure. they've also been leading the fight. And, and I think actually this is also I think very worth saying. I think the big fight right now in the United States uh, is in the Democratic Party and sure. and to really get the Democratic Party to recognize, at the very least, the occupation um, of the West Bank and the siege of Gaza, uh, let alone uh, Israeli apartheid. And so I've been really heartened to see that there have been more and more um, uh, Democratic Party legislators who've recently been elected uh, who are willing to criticize Israel. Um, so, of course, yep. I think Bernie Sanders has been very helpful. But, of course, we have Rashida Tlaib, who has just yes. been elected, yes. uh, Ilan Omar, who yes. is uh, uh, fighting for re-election right now, and, of course, the election of Jamal Bowman. Uh, and Cory Bush. So this is, I think these are all very good yes. signs. And I think what's been really wonderful about it is it's really been a multi-ethnic coalition. Um, so, you know, Jews have been a large part of the struggle for justice in Palestine, along with uh, uh, African-American, Palestinian-American allies and uh, co-conspirators, you could say. And, um, and I think on some level, like, 
that that is uh you know I, I look at the, the 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 movement for kind of realignment of American foreign policy and also for justice in Palestine yes. and democratic uh, Israel as being a, a very you know the best parts of America a very very lovely American movement. So. Absolutely. And I, I love to end on a good optimistic note. Thank you so much for being with us. Very, very interesting. Uh, it's absolutely delightful and honored to be here. Well, thank you.